Well, it's Family Worship Sunday today, and I see a whole bunch of kids in the house. If you're a kid, make some noise. Now, you adults, you adults can make noise, too, because kid is just an arbitrary age designation, right? I have not, I don't think I've graduated from that. At least that's what my family tells me once in a while. Um, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and get those out. And uh, at the same time, you can pull out your core guide. And there's a place on the front to take notes. If you're in a core group, there's little devotionals on the inside that kind of tie in with the message of the week. And there's a front uh, place on the front where you can take notes and jot down questions and so forth, thoughts that you might want to discuss with your groups. Uh, you can... Open your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 10, uh, but before we get to our biblical text, there's, there's another story that I want to read you. Now, some of you are saying, haven't you read enough out loud lately? <laughs> We're, our project is to read through the entire Bible uh, during the season of Lent. We began on March 1st, and as of yesterday morning, we finished the Old Testament. So, that's right. 54 hours and 40 minutes into our read, and I'm, a, I'm still thinking that it'll take us about 72 hours, and so we enter the New Testament on Tuesday evening. If you want to join in our live session, those happen in our library right here. Uh, 6 p.m. Tuesday, we'll read through the Gospel of Matthew, and if it's difficult for you to make it to uh, the church um, at that time, you can listen in from home. We're broadcasting all the readings live on Facebook. And a nice feature about that is those videos remain archived in the system for, well, indefinitely. I don't know how long. But if you go to the Centralia Church Facebook page, you can click on our video tab and all of the recordings for the whole Old Testament are there. So if you, are, uh, if you want to keep up and get through the whole thing, there you can go back and um, connect with those. But I want the kids to help me out. I have a, I have a Dr. Seuss story that I'd like to read, and it does, it does tie in with the message. So if you, um, well, kids, come on up. You can join me right up here. And uh, we have a picture so you, you know, the bigger kids can see something on the screen. But you, yeah, if you, come on up, Felix and Winters, come on. Any other kids? Yeah, any, any age kid, you can come up here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to sit down, yes. Come on up, any more? Any others? There we go, don't be shy. That's kind of cool to be up here, isn't it? You like that? Yeah. Do you like Dr. Seuss books? I love them. You love them? Me too. And every time when we watch Kind of Happy, like, say Dr. Seuss. You say. I like it because my mom gets tongue twisters. Yes, there's tongue twisters in these books, so hopefully I can get through it, okay? But this book is called The Sneetches, all right? So here we go. Now the star-bellied Sneetches had bellies with stars. The plain-belly Sneetches had none upon theirs. So do you understand what's happening? There's some of the Sneetches that have stars on their bellies. See the little green star? Just a small yeah, green star. Yeah. yeah. This, not the, and this one does not have a star. No. Those stars weren't so big. They were really so small. You might think such a thing wouldn't matter at all. But because they had stars, all the star-belly sneetches would brag, we're the best kind of sneetches on the beaches. With their snoots in the air, can you put your snoot in the air? They're, they think they're better. The star-bellied sneetches think they're better than the other ones. Would sniff and they'd snort. We'll have nothing to do with the plain-belly sort. And whenever they met some, when they were out walking, they'd hike right on past them without even talking. When the star-belly children went out to play ball, could a plain belly get in the game? Not at all. You could only play if your bellies had stars, 
and the plain-bellied children had none upon bars. When the star-belly sneeches had frankfurter roasts, or picnics, or parties, or marshmallow toasts, do you like roasting marshmallows? Yes. They never invited the plain-belly sneeches. They left them out cold in the dark of the beaches. They kept them away, never let them come near, and that's how they treated them year after year. Then one day, it seems, while the plain-belly sneeches were moping and doping alone on the beaches, just sitting there wishing their bellies had stars, a stranger zipped up in the strangest of cars. See this guy in the car? Yeah, this guy in the car showed up. My friends, he announced in a voice clear and keen, my name is Sylvester McMonkey McBean. <laughs> you like that name? Sylvester McMonkey McBean. That's a good name right there. And I've heard of your troubles. I've heard you're unhappy, but I can fix that. I'm the fix-it-up chappy. I've come here to help you. I have what you need, and my prices are low, and I work at great speed, and my work is 100% guaranteed. Then quickly, Sylvester McMonkey McBean put together a very peculiar machine, and he said, you want stars like a star-belly sneech? My friends, you can have them for $3 each. Just pay me your money and hop right aboard. So they clambered inside. Then the big machine roared, and it clonked, and it bonked, and it jerked, and it burked, and it bopped them about. But the thing really worked. When the plain belly sneeches popped out, they had stars. They actually did. They had stars upon bars. Then they yelled at the ones who had stars at the start. We're exactly like you. You can't tell us apart. We're all just the same now, you snooty old smarties. And now we can go to your Frankfurter parties. Good grief, groaned the ones who had stars at the first. We're still the best sneeches, and they are the worst. But now, how in the world will we know, they all frowned, if which kind is what and the other way round? Then up came McBean with a very sly wink, and he said, things are not quite as bad as you think. So you don't know who's who? That's perfectly true, but come with me, friends. Do you know what I'll do? I'll make you, again, the best sneeches on beaches, and it will all cost you is $10 eaches. Belly stars are no longer in style, said McBean. What you need is a trip through my star-off machine. This wondrous contraption will take off your stars so you won't look like sneeches who have them on ours. And that handy machine, working very precisely, removed all the stars from their tummies quite nicely. Then with snoots in the air, they paraded about and they opened their beaks and they let out a shout, we know who is who. Now there isn't a doubt the best kind of sneeches are sneeches without. Then of course, those with stars got frightfully mad. To be wearing a star now was frightfully bad. Then of course, old Sylvester McMonkey McBean invited them into his star off machine. Then, of course, from then on, as you probably guess, things really got into a horrible mess. All the rest of that day on those wild screaming beaches, the fix-it-up chappy kept fixing up sneeches off again, on again, in again, out again. Though the machines they raced about, round and about again, changing their stars every minute or two, they kept paying money, they kept running through until neither the plane nor the star bellies knew whether this one was that one, or that one was this one, or which one was what one, or what one was who. <laughs> then, when every last cent of their money was spent, the fix-it-up chappy packed up and he went. And he laughed as he drove in his car up the beach. They will never learn. No, you can't teach a sneech. But Mc Bean was quite wrong. I'm quite happy to say 
that the Sneetches got really quite smart on that day, the day they decided that Sneetches are Sneetches and no kind of Sneetch is the best on the beaches, that day all the Sneetches forgot about stars and whether they had one or not upon thars. That's a pretty good story, hmm? Yes. What, what's that story about? It's a Dr. Seuss story, yes. What was he trying to teach us, do you think? Uh, rhyming words? Rhyming words, yes, there's lots of rhyming words. It doesn't matter if it's fair or not. Yes, he's teaching us that we're kind of all the same, right? It doesn't matter if you have a star on your belly or if you did not. You know, in a, one of the, a big word that adults sometimes use is he's trying to teach us that we shouldn't have a prejudice. Do you know that word? Have you, heard, have you heard that word? It's like two words that are stuck together, pre, like before, and judge. You've probably heard that one. Make up your mind. And sometimes, sometimes we people, we make up our minds about other people before we really know them, right? And so the, the Sneetches with the stars on their belly, they thought they knew all about the Sneetches who didn't have any but they were quite wrong. In the end, they kind of figured out that they were all the same and they should share and participate together. And, uh, and what was the, fun, the, the guy's name, the, the funny name? Sylvester McMonkey? McBean? McMonkey. McMonkey McBean, right. You know what? Uh, I think he reminds me of somebody that we call the adversary or the devil. And there are people, and the devil really wants to get inside your head and convince you that other people are bad. And what he kept telling the Sneetches was that, hey, you don't want to hang out with the Sneetches without stars or with stars or whichever one it was. Remember, in the end, it was all sort of confusing and so what we need to remember from a story like this, and Dr. Seuss, he just puts it in a really fun kind of a story, is that deep down, we're all people and we're, we're kind of the same. And that we should not make up our mind about other people before we actually get to know them. Does that sound like a good thing to do? Yes. Yes. All right. Well, thank you so much for your help. Now, I know that when you came in, there's a, a little table in the back that had some clipboards on it that had little sermon note pages for kids. And if you didn't get one, you can go back to that table and pick one up. Because the, the story that I'm going to talk about with all the rest of us in here is kind of really similar to the story about the Sneetches, okay? So when you're taking little notes, maybe you can write down things that compare between a guy named Peter and Cornelius and the Sneetches, okay? Is that a deal? You can think and listen really closely for that. All right, thank you so much. Go ahead and find your seats, and if you need a clipboard, go get it. I should just sit down, sit right there, and get out the other book here, right? There's lots of stuff in our world that... Um, promotes us making up our minds about people before we actually get to know them. There's all sorts of uh, dividing lines in life. The world kind of pushes us into a way of thinking about, uh, about people. And I know um, you probably never do this or you would, you know, it's, it's, when we talk about the word prejudice in our minds, we think, oh, no, I, I, I wouldn't do anything like that. But we all, the reality is, we all draw dividing lines somewhere, and there's people are, that are on this side of the line that may be somewhat like us, and there's people on the other side, and the human risk is that we, we make up our minds about people over here before we actually have done the hard work, uh, the relational work of getting to know people that are maybe across, there's walls and lines all over life, so there's walls, fences. When I was a kid and learning how to swim, you know there's that floating divider on the pool, 
And it keeps you people in the shallow end and the people who got to go in the deep end, you know. There's a dividing line there. Um, what other lines can you think of? Maybe jot some of those down in, in your notes there. There's all sorts of them that gated communities would be one, uh, no trespassing signs, uh, railroad tracks, um, rivers. There could be natural geographic type, types of things, mountain ranges separate you know, the, the east side and the west side of a state like ours. And there's never any rivalry between the two. You never make up your mind about, oh, those people over on the east side. And having lived over there, I know they never say, oh, yeah, those west siders. They never do anything like that. But we, we know how we humans think. And our prejudices act as dividing lines between us. There's lines, whether they're visible, whether they're invisible, there's boundaries that end up segregating us. And if you have your Bible open, there's a story in Acts chapter 10 that, that talks about one of the huge dividing lines between people groups in the pages of our scriptures. We read about the people of Israel, the people of God. We call them the Jewish people, right? These are the Jews. And the people who aren't Jews are called what? Gentiles. And so there's a big distinguishing. Um, the Bible distinguishes between Jews and Gentiles, and there's, there's a line between the two. And so the people in the time of... Um, that we're looking at here, this had been going on for thousands of years now. This line has been in place. And so there's, uh, well, there's a divide. There's that we don't associate with the people over there. And there's this meeting that happens between a, the apostle, Peter, Disciple Peter, we know, we know Peter's story. Uh, one of Jesus' favorite disciples, you know, he's, he's up and he's down. You know, he, uh, he's the one who confessed Jesus as Messiah, but then he's also the one who right before when Jesus needed him the most, he's also the one who said, no, I don't even know who he is. We, we know a little bit about Peter's story, but then we're introduced to a man named Cornelius, who was a Gentile. Uh, Peter was about as Jewish as you can get, and Cornelius was uh, Roman. He was about as Gentile as, as you could get. In the first part of chapter 10, um, we learned that he was a Roman centurion, part of the Roman legion, and he was assigned and living in a city called uh, Caesarea, and Caesarea was a port town uh, on the Mediterranean Sea in kind of in the boundary of, of Israel. Now, Herod the Great, who was kind of in cahoots with the Roman Empire, he wanted them to think of him favorably, um, Herod the Great built the city of Caesarea to, in honor of Caesar Augustus. And so this was a, this was a key site in the Roman Empire. Uh, it was a, a main trading post for them to get into the eastern part of their empire. Uh, there were temples and shrines and all sorts of things to uh, the Roman gods. And, and so this was about as Gentile of a place as you could find in Israel. And good Jews just didn't go there. Once in a while, they would have business that would take them through there, but that was not a place that you really desired to go. And, and Cornelius is living in, in that town. Well, the text that we're going to look at makes it distinctly clear that there is a line, there's a great divide between these two people groups, the Jews and the Gentiles but the Holy Spirit has something to say about this segregation. Um, 
which is a good thing. There's no place in the church of Jesus for segregation and for these sorts of prejudices. And you know what? We are constantly called out in the deep to confront the places in our lives where we might have erected walls and boundaries between us and, and other people. So the, on the front of your core guide, you can write down peoples that you may have built up a wall against. You know, maybe you're a Husky fan and you write down Cougar fans. I don't know what it is, but you can make light of it because we all have these sorts of prejudices at some place in our life. So who are the people that you just are a little, I don't know if I can talk to them. What are the places where you won't go? Those sorts of things are how you want to access the inside of your mind here. So in this text, in, in, uh, in Acts 10, at the beginning... We meet Cornelius. What we learn about Cornelius is that he was, although he was a Gentile, although he was living in Caesarea, he had a good relationship with the Jewish people there, and he was one who feared and respected and prayed to the Hebrew God. And so he's ha he has a vision one day, and uh, the vision says, hey, send for a guy named Peter, to come up and visit you and talk to you. So he says, okay, I'm going to go, I'm going to send for Simon Peter, and he sends a contingent out to go fetch Peter. A little bit past this, in verse 9 of chapter 10, uh, Peter has a vision. It's noontime, so Peter went up to pray at noontime. I see all sorts of problem with, problems with that. I mean, when, it's, it's really hard to pray when you're hungry, isn't it? And, and it says right here in the text, uh, about noon the following day as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray and he became hungry. Well, you think? He, he, he's trying to focus but his mind keeps wandering to food, and it says that he falls into a trance, and in his trance he sees this vision, and this big sail, this big sheet, comes down out of heaven and dangles in front of him, and in the sheet are all sorts of animals. Now, the animals that are in the sheet are all the ones that are forbidden for Jewish people to eat. So if you want to look up that list, it's in, uh, it's in Leviticus. You can find it there. But all of those, uh, you know, like, so let's just say uh, pigs, camels, those sorts of things were, were in this sheet. And he, the, in the vision, he hears this voice that says, kill and eat. And he's like, I can't do that. I've never eaten anything like this. So his vision, he's dreaming about, he's dreaming about pigs in a blanket. And <laughs> it's noontime, and he's hungry. And I get it, the struggle is real. But tradition, his upbringing, his personal practice, he's not allowed to, to touch, to defile himself with what's in the blanket that's dangling from heaven. And God says, kill and eat. Three times. Peter needs things to come in threes, doesn't he? Three times. And, and Peter's like, no, I, I can't do that. And God says, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Now notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say kill and eat because this is fine. What it says is don't call things impure where God's activity has made them clean. So God has the power to transform and make anything pure. And what he is teaching Peter is you need to be careful about that, that sometimes maybe what you have learned has been so deeply rooted in you that you're no longer looking for the activity of God. You're not seeing when God has transformed something and made it clean. Three times. 
Maybe Peter thought it was uh, some sort of temptation. Maybe I'm being tested here. Maybe my faith is being tested. Oh, come on, Pete. It's only a few bacon bits. You know, it's not like real bacon anyway. Just, just do it. No, and he just digs it. You can, can you see Peter digging in his heels? And he thinks that he's absolutely right. God's trying to get his attention. No? I have the power to clean up anything. I have the power to make pure what you think is impure. And don't, don't get caught up in that. And so while Peter is having this vision here, the guys that Cornelius sent, you know, they, they were in Caesarea. Peter's in Joppa, which is um, on the map. It's, they're about, the cities are about 30 miles apart. And so the day before, Cornelius has the vision. He sends his contingent, and they're traveling down the coast. And uh, they arrive as Peter's finishing up this vision. And Peter's in a trance. He doesn't hear him. The Holy Spirit has to tell him, hey, wake up, wake up. The message is done. Just, that's, that's just one little bit for you, okay? There's people at the door. Go talk to them. I sent them to you. It's okay. It's okay. So he goes down, and the contingent from uh, Cornelius has arrived, and they say, hey, are you Peter? Yes, I'm Peter. I'm like, hey, we need, you to come. we need you to come with us to see our boss, Cornelius. And so Peter, listening to the Holy Spirit, probably uncomfortable if you ask me. I mean, these are, these are guys who were in league with the people who crucified Jesus. A Roman centurion is saying, hey, I need to talk to you. <laughs> About what? I'm not going to tell you right now. You want me to go with you to a Roman centurion's house who's a Gentile, and it's in Caesarea. Well, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if I want to go to that city. Hey, it's okay. I sent him. Go ahead. So Peter goes. See, God brought these two together. Neither Peter nor Cornelius was able to cross the boundary between them on their own. It had to be only by the activity of God that this happens. The Holy Spirit is the one that broke down the barriers between Jew and Gentile. The Holy Spirit is the one who empowered each of these men to move from beyond their segregated places and cross the great divide that existed between them. The Holy Spirit isn't bound by the categories that we, we might want to live by. And if you know what, if, if we go where the Holy Spirit is working, he's going to lead us across the boundaries. He's going to lead us over the great divide that we have put around our life. God did this work. He brought these two together to teach them something, but also by virtue of it being in the Bible to teach us something about the way that he works. God told Peter, don't make a distinction. Don't indulge, um, indulge no prejudice is what God was teaching him. Get rid of all the partiality that might reside in you. He's calling Peter to change the way he looks at Gentiles. He's calling each and every one of us to, to reevaluate, to think about the ways that we think about other people. Don't look at people as Jews and Gentiles any longer, Peter, or as insiders and outsiders or liberals and conservatives or whatever categories that you set up there. Let's look at everybody how we look upon ourselves. So we get all the way to this point of the text, and what I want to read to you starts in chapter 20, or in uh, chapter 10, verse 23. So the guys arrive from Cornelius, and, and uh, Peter invites them into the house to be his guest. So that's a, that's a huge act of hospitality right there, which was something that was allowed in the Hebrew law. These were foreigners in their land, and so the Bible teaches them, the Scripture had taught them, their tradition said, hey, you take care of the foreigners that are in your land. You welcome them into your house. So this is okay for him. He does that. The next day, Peter started out with them and some of the believers 
from, jo from Joppa went along. So Peter brings his own contingent. Hey, if we're going to Caesarea, I'm not going to be the only one implicated in this because we're, we, you know, this is a little uh, out of sorts here. And, and so he takes a group with him. And Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. So Cornelius is excited that Peter's coming. And so he gathers all of his family, his friends, his closest people and associates, and crams them into his living room there. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I am only a man myself. Don't worship me. We're going to worship God. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So right now, Peter's got the message. He, he, he's connecting the message that he learned in his vision that really wasn't about the animals that were in the sheet. It was about this issue, the prejudices that he held against the Gentiles. God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? And Cornelius answered, Three days ago I was in my house praying at this hour. At three in the afternoon, suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He is a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good for you to come. Now, we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. And then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message. So he's giving them some credit. Okay, you've probably heard the story. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Peter's going to keep the sermon going, but while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. Peter got cut off. <laughs> the Holy Spirit just said, okay, that's a nice sermon, brother, but I got some work to do in these people. They believed this message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles. For they had heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. It's the Gentile Pentecost. Compare this little episode with what happened in Acts chapter 2 where the Holy Spirit poured out on the Jewish people who were gathered in Jerusalem. And now we're in Caesarea. It's still in Israel, but it's a Gentile Roman city and, and there's a house full of Gentiles who are calling out to the name of God and the Holy Spirit falls on them and it's the Gentile Pentecost here. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. So I put a sentence on the front of your core guide that I want you to consider. There's three parts to it. Don't hesitate to humble yourself and show hospitality to anyone, 
even those who are different than you. So if you don't have a core guide, I'll say that again. Don't, don't hesitate to humble yourself and show hospitality to anyone, even those who are different than you. And the first part of that simply says, don't, don't hesitate. We've all had situations in life where something has confronted us and we've had to make a decision quickly. And every single one of us, I'm sure, has hesitated at some point and the opportunity has passed you by. Is that a true story for you? It is for me. Something confronts you and like, oh, I really, I gotta think about that. I don't know if this fits in with, and then the opportunity is gone. When it comes to obeying God, folks, don't delay. Don't hesitate. When, when the Holy Spirit nudges you, asks you to do something, pokes you to change something in your behavior, or, or maybe it's you're out and about and somebody, you know, just sitting the next table over at the coffee shop, the Holy Spirit says, hey, you know what? Talk to them. It's so easy for us to rationalize that away. Uh, I, don't, you know, I, I don't know if I have time. I got, a, I got a meeting back at work. You know, it's in 25 minutes, and who knows how long this is going to take. But then it might come again. Hey, talk to that person. They need, they need somebody to talk to right now. It's so easy to miss that. It's so easy to hesitate, and then up and off they go, or up and off you go, and, and you've missed that moment. Don't delay. Don't hesitate. Don't make excuses. One of the things that causes us to hesitate is our pride. Pride prevents us from taking steps and acting to move beyond, uh, beyond our hesitations, beyond our prejudices. Um, it's, it's our pride that causes us to be firmly rooted in, in what we think is right. And so we, we quickly dismiss opportunities because our pride just makes us so stubborn and obstinate closes our minds. So maybe as you think about don't hesitate, uh, maybe your heart isn't in the right place yet. Maybe your heart is saying, you know what, I'm not so sure about this, but in your head, in your mind, you know that it's right. Okay, God's, God's talking to me here to, to talk to this person that I don't, I don't know if I really want to. Your head tells you it's right. Your heart says, I'm not so sure. Let's dig in our heels here. When you come, when you come to a moment like this, have, have, you ever, have you ever heard the phrase, fake it till you make it? Write that one down. Don't hesitate. Fake it till you make it. Because maybe your heart isn't in the right place. Maybe it hasn't changed yet, but you sense that you know God is calling you to something. Don't hes hesitate. Fake it till you make it. Sometimes you have to start acting in the ways that you know you ought to before your heart will come around and join the party. Sometimes you have to proceed in the way that you know that you should go, even though your heart is resisting. And your heart resists because human pride sets in and locks you in place. It's a long journey to get something from your head to your heart. It's only 12 to 18, 18 inches on any, any one of us. But that's maybe the, the greatest distance, the things that we know to be true, the things that we know we ought to do, that's a long journey to get it down to affect change in our heart. So don't hesitate. Do what is right and let God change your heart. Peter knew what to do. And he acted, in this case, he acted in the right way. So he went with his head, okay, the Holy Spirit clearly told me to go with these people. So I'm going to go. I don't think his heart was all the way there yet. I think he's probably going on that journey, you know, um, how am I going to explain this to everybody back home? I mean, what's, what's John going to say about this? What are, what's the church how are they going to respond to me going to Caesarea and going into the home of a Gentile? How, I don't know how I'm going to get out from underneath this. But he did what was right. 
and because he did what was right, he grew through the experience. This Gentile household received salvation because he was obedient. And the church began a brand new chapter in expansion. As the church moved out from Jerusalem and to the ends of the earth, this was a key moment because Peter listened to the Holy Spirit and said, I'm going to get past my prejudices and I'm going to do what I know is right because God clearly told me to do this, but I don't know if my heart's in the right place yet. He went anyway. And because of that, several things changed. I know God has the power to do lots of sorts of things, but in the way the Bible is given to us, this is a critical moment. And we are probably here because Peter was obedient. That's amazing, isn't it? What would that look like for you? Don't hesitate. Humble yourself. Don't hesitate to humble yourself. Now, Tradition had shaped Peter's prejudice against the Gentiles. He had been taught to steer clear of these people, and, you know, our prejudices usually thrive on tradition. Hey, we've always done it this way, and Peter calls it out. He says in verse 28, he says, it's unlawful for me to associate with you. Well, that's not entirely true. You see, his tradition had embellished what God actually said. The people over, over time had twisted around and made God's word into something that it didn't say. I mean, people are famous for that, right? We're going to take what God says, and we're, you know what? It doesn't really fit me, so we're going to say that God, well, what God meant was this, and we end up reinterpreting and, re, and we change the word of God. So Peter is quoting something here that wasn't actually true. If you go back to when God first approached Abraham and he called Abraham, he said, um, remember this? He, he says, I want to bless you. I want you to be my people. Out of you will grow this great nation. This is Genesis, remember? What, for what purpose? So that you will be a blessing to the world. To be a blessing to the world. God wanted to set apart a people to live differently, to be holy, to know the ways of God, to show the world that it's possible to live how God would want us to live. But it wasn't so that they can just be this cool group of, you know, God people. There was, the purpose was that you would take God to the world, that the blessings that you have received from God you can share with the rest of humanity. Now, that's not an exclusive statement. That's a very inclusive task, isn't it? So that you can take me to the world. That's not unlawful when you think about it. So Peter has bought into something his tradition has taught him, and he's using that in a harmful way. See, all the rules and regulations that the people of Israel were following were, were simply to mark them and set them apart, to make them holy like God is holy. But, but clearly, God intended to reach all people. In God's mind, yes, the practices of the Gentiles were evil and would need to be dealt with. And, and the people of Israel were to take God to them so that they would recognize the error of their ways and they would repent and they would turn and they would come, they would come to God. And in this moment, Peter tells this group of Gentiles gathered in this household of Cornelius that God does not show partiality He's saying, I realize now that God loves you as much as God loves me. There's humility in that statement. He had to lay down his pride. He had to lay down what tradition had taught him. He had to step over this great divide of his lifelong prejudice against these people. Sometimes when we 
make the effort. Sometimes when we try to step across that great divide, what holds us back is, is our thought that, hey, I don't know what people are going to think about this. I don't, I, don't, I don't know how I'm going to be received by my own people now. They might, they might be a little bit upset about that. The greatest battle sometimes in stepping over the divide is, is one with your own culture because you're going against the grain. You're swimming into the current. It, it's hard. But humble yourself. Lay, lay down your pride. Step across the great divide that separates you from those whom you might find yourself looking down upon or trying to avoid or, or stay away from. Act humbly as modeled by our Lord Jesus who, who had a throne in heaven. In the heavenly courts, Jesus is Lord, he's king, he's God, and yet he laid aside all of those heavenly privileges so that he could come down and deal with our mess here, our sin. And he came and he walked among us. He humbled himself to do that. And we killed him. But God wasn't done with the story because Jesus came to deal with our mess, to deal with our sin, to extend God's mercy and forgiveness, and so Jesus was raised to new life to pay the penalty for our sin. You know, we've spent 54-plus hours reading through the Old Testament, and the one thing that is distinctly clear is humans are dead in their sin, every single one of us. And the only answer for the death that we will face in our sin is Jesus. And he set aside his privilege. He humbled himself to come down here so that we could be forgiven. So don't hesitate to humble yourself, to lay down your pride so that you can communicate and and take Jesus, take your faith, take his love, take his mercy to other people. Don't hesitate to humble yourself and show hospitality. We're about to gather around this table. It's, it's the Lord's table. It's a place of hospitality. It's a place where we share food together with, with Jesus. Jesus stepped across that great divide, the, the, the chasm of sin that separates humans from God. Jesus stepped across that so that we could sit around this table together, that we could enjoy a place and be welcomed as one of his own family. When Jesus gathered with his disciples around that table, this was not a homogenous group of guys. I mean, there were people of all sorts gathered around that table, people who didn't like each other, men, women, who had traveled different places in life, and Jesus, in Jesus, there's unity. Jesus brings them all together. I'd say that most of us haven't, have, haven't overcome all of our prejudices. We may think we're doing well, and, and you, we may very well be making progress, but I think to move forward... I think we need to be converted like Peter was on this day. Peter had already made his profession of faith. He was a believer in Jesus, but there was something in reserve. He had this mindset that, you know, God's for us. Jesus is for us. And God said, no, I'm for everybody. Jesus came to do this work as much for you and and as much for this Gentile that I'm introducing you to whose name is Cornelius. Peter had to have that conversion of his mind. See, I think that we are, um, I think we hold on to at least one of the isms. Racism, sexism, classism, nationalism, you can fill in whatever ism that you want. If you hesitate at the idea of befriending someone or associating with a certain people that, that aren't really like you or don't share the same beliefs of you, as you, um, if you've never opened your home to 
those outside of your usual circle, it's possible that somewhere inside you have another ism called elitism. And if that's you, ask the Lord to change your heart. Start acting in ways that would align with what he's asked us to do, and along the way, God will change your heart. Peter recognizes in this moment that God, that God doesn't show favoritism and that he welcomes people from all walks of life, every place. Anyone who would call on the name of Jesus to be saved is welcome around this table. And the confirmation of all of that was right towards the end of the text when the Holy Spirit fell on that whole group of people who were gathered in that house. And it was, it was a conversion moment for the Gentiles who came to faith in Jesus that day. It was a conversion moment for Peter who had his mind blown, turned around. His mind was sanctified that day to be inclusive. Where he thought one thing, God said, no, that's not quite right. We need to be open. And did you notice that the people who were with Peter, they weren't totally on board yet. They're like, they were astonished that the Holy Spirit would come on these people. And you know what? All the people in Peter's contingent, I think they came to a conversion moment as well. And my prayer for us as we gather around this table would be that we, if, if there are things that we are holding on to and harboring, that we would lay those before the feet of Jesus this morning. That maybe, too, our minds on this issue might be sanctified today. People of God said, mm, amen. I'm going to have the 